This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Now it's time for something completely different, the Evidence for Faith radio show, where we give you the evidence to know for certain that Christianity is true. Hello, my name is Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis, and I just want to remind our listening audience that this show is sponsored in part by Grace Community Church. Visit their website at a place for grace. That's the number for a placeforgrace.org. And uh, I just wanted to remind our listeners also, Keith, that uh, we are um, on Facebook as well as iTunes. You can visit our website at evidence for the number four, evidenceforfaith.com. So if you've missed a show or if you're considering studying something a little bit more in depth, you can scan our uh, roster of previous shows. Um, We're over 80 now, um, so you can check that out and uh, pick some topics and uh, listen on your, uh, your iPod. Absolutely. And we want to wish everyone out in the audience a happy Father's Day. It has been a great Father's Day for me so far. I don't know about for you, Mike. I got a couple books from the kids. We're celebrating as soon as I get home for dinner. Oh, great. Well, I tell you, I had to share my daughter's um, uh, happy Father's Day card because it was terrific. It says on the front, Dad, I will never forget many of the things you've told me. And then when you open it up, she says, or understand them. Or do them, really, but I'll remember them. So it's hilarious, hilarious. That's from my little 19-year-old girl, my baby. Yes, uh, she's no longer a baby, but she'll always be your little girl. Exactly. Now, we had a, an item in the news uh, recently. We talked about that find, supposed find, of Noah's Ark up on Mount Ararat, and there was a question as to whether it was a fraud or not. The pictures, photographs, the video looked all very convincing, but, you know, these things have to be checked out and and backed up, and experts and outsiders have to come in and examine. So uh, today, actually, I got, or I guess it was yesterday, I got a letter from the Association for Biblical Research, which is a group of archaeologists, and they uh, say that they're familiar with the guide that took the this uh, latest group of explorers up, and that it is a fraud, that they know who this person is, and he is not to be trusted. So so there's a little more news on that item for people who were wondering what was up with that discovery on, on uh, Mount Ararat. Keith, there was a, a news item recently on MSNBC and Fox News about gay couples raising children, and that, in fact, the gay children's, uh, the, the gay couple's children uh, did better than the traditional family's children. And this is back to Father's Day again here, because the implication is that fathers aren't necessary. Yeah, sperm right? donors only. Have, yeah, you can have uh, lesbian couples that will raise kids, and the kids are actually, according to this study, more likely to succeed in different in some areas. But was than, it actually a study? Well, see, you're a, a physician, you're a medical doctor, you're used to reading studies. 
So you know how studies can be used to, to lie to people. So what's your opinion? Is this a, an accurate scientific study, or has this been— I think it was more of a survey because people were selected um, not in a true random, unbiased way. Uh, the people who responded to the survey questionnaire were actually chosen through advertisements that were ran uh, in, in Boston as well as San Francisco Press. And uh, that's how they they uh, contacted people so, so who was, were willing to participate in the study. Right. So that's a one strike against it. It was self-selected. Correct. So the people that um, wanted to show that their children were well-adjusted and, and even superior to other children uh, put their kids forward. But the other thing is that I know from looking at the uh, details of the study that what they did is examined and measured the kids in multiple regions. So you know, many, many different ways. They looked at their math scores and psychological things and, and all that. And then what they did is one of the ways you lie in a study is you cherry pick data. So in any group of kids, 72 kids of any kind, if you looked at their performance, in some areas they would be below average and in some areas they would be above average. That's just kind of what a normal distribution would be of 72 children. And so what they did is they picked those areas where the kids did better, and they said, see, look, this is cause and effect result of their being raised by a gay couple. So, Yeah, what I, w I would have liked to have seen was a, um, a study cohort that consisted of, let's say, adopted children in a, a standard um, uh, nuclear family type, um, even... Uh, other other kids being included would be, let's say, a, a blended family, mm -hmm. and to see how they did across the board compared to the uh, gay and lesbian couples who raised other children. Right. And then you could get a, a better snapshot, if you would, of a, a cross-section of, of how these kids did as far as uh, you know their self-esteem, how they adjusted in school, and things like that. Um, now, the question is, how did this compare to data that's been generated over the last 20 years? Well, in the past 20 years, it's, it has been shown that um, two parents, mother and father, are very important to children and that those children do much better, and that's just the way things are. So this uh, study doesn't add any more data, and um, we still ought to be celebrating Father's Day because fathers are still very important. Well, amen. Well, we have a, an exciting guest on the show today. We have calling in from Virginia. Professor Gary Habermas. And Dr. Habermas, if you're there, please uh, say hello to our audience. Please identify myself. Exactly. Good, good to be with you fellows. I also had a good Father's Day. Wonderful. Yeah, we we're sorry that you had to um, uh, cut it a bit short to um, to go back to work and be uh, be on the air, but we're well, happy actually, that... we didn't even tell them I was doing the interview, so we let them leave when they felt like leaving, and we had plenty of time, so... Wonderful. Terrific. Well, Dr. Habermas is Distinguished Professor of Apologetics and Philosophy and Chairman of the Department of Philosophy and Theology at Liberty University. He is author of many, many books. I believe the count is up to 36. Is that right? I think that's pretty accurate. 36, yeah. and about 18 of them on the resurrection specifically. Right. So I was telling Dr. Mike that I consider you one of the leading experts on the resurrection, if not the leading and my comment, uh, Dr. Habermas, by the way, was that uh, next to the Apostle Paul, you must be the leading expert on the <laughs> resurrection. Yeah. Yeah, a long way back from him. Well, 
we, uh, Mike and I talk about the resurrection a lot on this show because this show is about the evidence that supports Christianity and sure. the Christian worldview. And I remember a conversation that I had with, uh, I won't mention his name, uh, but someone that I know who was teaching a Sunday school, uh, high school age Sunday school, and I happened to also teach high school age Sunday school, and so I was asking him what he was teaching on, and he, he was very proud of this lesson that he had developed where he brought in a box of bones. Uh, Dr. Habermas, you'll be interested to know, he brought in this box of bones to teach his kids that if these were the bones of Jesus, that there would not, it would not make any difference to the uh, religion of Christianity, and that you could still be a good Christian, even knowing that archaeologists had found the bones of Jesus. Do you, uh, now, I, I know what I said to him, but do you? How, what's your response to a remark like that, that apparently people uh, believe out there? Yeah, and there, there are some scholars who make those sorts of comments, too, but it, it's not a New Testament-type uh, position, because uh, for, for a number of reasons, but the New Testament position is that Jesus was raised bodily, for starters, and that would have some implications for his actual body. And, of course, the New Testament claims that the, the tomb was empty, so there's another point. Appearances in an empty tomb are the uh, traditional uh, pieces of data that that most resurrection research is based on. But, but even more so, uh, you know, you mentioned the Apostle Paul a moment ago in his famous statement uh, twice in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is vain. So there's no room for that sort of understanding from the Apostle Paul, and hence I think traditional Christians rightly reject that sort of approach. Now, Dr. Habermas, I met you at Biola. You were uh, teaching a course there while I was there, and so I got to uh, be under your instruction, and you really taught me a, a different way of looking at the evidence for the resurrection, and it, I believe you've developed this method that many other people have been using. I've seen in a lot of articles and items about the resurrection, they use this concept of the minimal facts, and we've actually talked about it on the show in the past, this way of looking at the evidence for the resurrection and using just the bare minimum facts. What What's that all about? Did did you develop that uh, that technique, and and can you explain it a little bit? Well, the, the the argument itself, I I worked on my doctoral dissertation at uh, Michigan State University many 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 moons ago, and uh, I've continued it since then. Now, I that doesn't mean I mean I guess this application of the resurrection is is what I'm known for doing. But but if you think about it, that method itself is how critical scholars use the New Testament when they don't think they can trust it hook, line, and sinker. When they, when they don't think they can believe in inspiration or anything like that, you uh, have to ask the question, well, then on what grounds do critics accept even the pieces, the bits and pieces that they accept from the New Testament, on what is that based? And they have to do something like this, and that is, to apply their tools, uh, when I'm lecturing on philosophy of history and its companion discipline, uh, historiography, I call them tools and rules. The, you know, whatever job you're doing, you have tools and you have rules on how to use those tools. And the historian has the same sort of things available. And 
you apply them to history, and you find in, in this case that you're talking about, you have a list of data that scholars can agree on, whether they're believers or unbelievers. And obviously the ones they agree on are uh, almost always the ones that are the best evidence. And my point is, if we use only the best evidence data, which happen, secondly, to be the ones that scholars across the entire spectrum agree on, uh, that is sufficient data to argue that the resurrection of Jesus is the best explanation for the facts. So that, that's the minimal facts argument. Now, uh, you say that, um, that a lot of critics agree, but, but don't—I mean, most critics disagree all the time, so, so explain that a little bit more. I'm not, ex- sure. not sure exactly what you mean when you say—you're not saying that uh, all the critics uh, agree that the resurrection occurred— Right. Yeah, I'd say that if I had to do a head count, which I'm, I've pretty much done, uh, from from uh, the major publications on the resurrection from 1975 to the present, in uh, uh, French, German, and English, and so, so I mean, I can I can pretty much say that this list of facts are going to be widely accepted by scholars. I would say in the 90 some percentile of people who are writing. Some of them would be so close to, you know, 95, 97, 98 that they're not even hardly questioned. Now, that doesn't mean they believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, but it means that they think that these are good uh, data and that that whatever you base, whatever you come up with for a final conclusion must make use of these facts. But I will tell you parenthetically, uh, and, and in other words, let me have one more sentence here where I'll, I'll just clarify that last comment. In other words, what these scholars are agreeing to are the facts on the list, not always the interpretation of the facts. And that, that is a very key thing, and I think that's probably what you're hinting at, uh, the difference between, yes, these are facts, and what do we gain from these facts? What do these facts mean? What do they indicate? Um, secondly, though, it is very popular today among specialists work in this area of New Testament studies, uh, it, it is very popular to say that Jesus was raised from the dead in some sense. The traditional Orthodox view would be bodily, and that's come back with... Well, when I went to grad school, uh, you could find virtually no scholars, unless they were evangelicals, who believed that Jesus was raised bodily. Today, it is... I mean, you can argue that it's the predominant view. It's that, wow. it's that popular. So so the other part of your question is, well, what about the resurrection itself from this list of facts? And there, are, it's hard to do an exact head count and say, well, across the board, what do they all say? But I would think probably a majority of scholars today believe that whatever happened, happened to Jesus. And that's how I demarcate the, the, uh, the, the you know, one side, left side, right side, of this line, I think the the center is: uh, Did what happened, whatever happened after the crucifixion of Jesus, did it happen to Jesus, or did it happen only to his disciples? Mm. And if you say it happened to Jesus, I'm saying on the something really happened to Jesus side, uh, I have argued before that that's more than half of the scholars writing today. Wow! You are listening to Evidence for Faith. Um, I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. And I'm Keith Kendricks. You can call us at 609-398-1020. On the line with us today is Dr. Gary Habermas, 
Um, he's the uh, professor from Liberty University and an expert on the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, professor, I, I do have a question for you. Uh, and I noticed that in 1976 you did get your Ph.D. from uh, Michigan State University. Uh, Long time ago. Right? Obviously a secular environment, and so right. they had to put these restrictions on you, didn't they, uh, for you to uh, do your dissertation for your Ph.D. on the resurrection? Right. Yeah, we had to do something that everybody would agree to, and I actually had a member on my committee. I had a member from the history department, a member from the philosophy department, and I'd have to go back and think through this, but I believe three members, at least two, from the School of Religion. So I had to um, satisfy the representatives there, and I did not handpick the crowd to get everybody believing in the resurrection. It wasn't like that at all. But they, very early on, one of my directors said, um, you can do this, uh, but we want reasons. Don't tell us Jesus was raised because the New Testament said he was raised. You, you can't go there. Now, in, you know, having said that, though, I say that a lot in lectures, and people totally misunderstand me when a few moments later I start talking about the Apostle Paul. Mm. Critics have no, absolutely no problem, no matter how far to the left they are, they have no problem with you using the New Testament. That's not an issue. The issue is what portions are you using for the New Testament. If there are credited portions written by people they trust, and that's chiefly, the further you move left, that's chiefly going to... Uh, come down to Paul, and the uh, half of the books, that, that the seven to eight uh, epistles that they trust from Paul, they'll let you use those books just, you know, without questioning too much. Uh, but, but that's an, a big misunderstanding. They, they will, not only will they let you use the New Testament, they want you to use the New Testament, they'll use the New Testament, but you have to use it the way they use it. You can't quote a verse and say it's true because the verse said it was true. And that's what the, my director was saying, you know, don't pull that. Now, in your biography, uh, you talk, uh, that's at your website, GaryHabermas.com, uh, you talk about a time when you were basically searching for the truth, you weren't sure what religion was true. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that's the kind of thing that, that we talk a lot about on the, the show, is uh, how you can know that um, one religion is um, more linked to reality, let's put it, uh, than another religion. So tell us a little bit about your experience and when you were searching yeah. for truth. Well, I was raised in a Christian home. I never try to hide that. And uh, But in my teen years, I began going through some uh, pretty serious doubts, and this continued into my uh, mid-20s. And I, I checked out, uh, well, I, I mean, I checked out because I was I checked out different religions and belief systems because I was genuinely interested in the possibility that I could be mistaken. So I, I know I made a couple trips to the uh, to the Mormon headquarters in Utah. I uh, checked out a, a, some Seventh Day Adventist beliefs. I became very enamored at one point with uh, Buddhism, and in fact quite along quite far along in my own studies I wasn't a kid and I'd I mean I'd been to grad school and and had gone quite far along in my grad studies and my uh, one occasion that I, I tell frequently uh, my, my mother called me just to see how I was doing to check up on me and to say how my questions were coming and I told her that I thought I was probably within a few months of becoming a Buddhist so uh, 
as far as I'm, and you know, personally, I'm 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 not totally clear in my mind how close I got to Buddhism. I mean, in my mind, there were days when I thought I'd crossed the line. Um, so it was it was a very serious search for me, and um, the resurrection was at the center of it because very early in my doubts. Uh, people would say, you know, you started the program out by talking about Noah's Ark. And, and when I had questions, people would come to me and say, oh, did you hear this about Noah's Ark? Did you hear this about the Dead Sea Scrolls? Uh, good or bad? They would, you know, you hear a lot of wild things in the news. And, and I would check this out or check that out. And really, uh, you know, someone would say, what about prophecy? What about archaeology? And I, I came to the conclusion that the only potential evidence that I could really, really hang my hat on was the resurrection of Jesus. I spent years studying the resurrection prior to doing my dissertation. In fact, when I started my dissertation in those days, this is foreign to research today, but we had note cards. And I had about, as I recall, I think I had 1,200 of them and um, many, many, many sources. And I'd read people very much on both sides of the fence. In fact, I spent most of my time reading people on that disagreed with me because I wanted to know what was being said. And uh, so I came into my study from that angle, and I actually stopped studying the resurrection at a certain point because I thought um, that the resurrection, I don't know if I would say as strongly as could be disproven, but at one point I didn't think apologetics could answer the toughest questions. And so I walked away from my study of the resurrection for maybe a year or two. And then I came back to it, and I realized that the question had already been answered in the literature, and I had not had the best literature at that time. In fact, I was reading some sources that were very, very old, uh, almost 100 years old. They were classical works, but I was getting information that had been corrected uh, in the sciences. And uh, so then I realized that the, the road was open to uh, study again, and that culminated with my finishing my dissertation, and, and that was sort of a symbolic time for me as, uh, you know, my search having uh, on the resurrection, uh, having ended and being sure that Jesus was raised from the dead. So, uh, yeah, I mean, for me it was a very, very tough time. I went to bed very late at night, often, you know, where did my, st- my questions end, and then I'd wake up very early in my first question the next morning was where did I leave off the night before, and that went on for years. Well, Professor, I have a question for you along those lines. Uh, I know that you did a lot of personal seeking and searching on your own, uh, and what would be your best advice to a seeker today who is looking but not sure, and tell that seeker uh, why, since they have some degree of intelligence, that they should start with Christianity as opposed to Buddhism or Mormonism or any of the other 300 religions uh, worldwide? Uh, that, that's a great question. Let me, let me um, uh, aim a question in two different, uh, or comment in two different directions. First of all, for the, for the listener who has gone through doubts, my, my third book on doubt just appeared about a month ago. And uh, to show that this isn't a, you know, quarter of my book kind of thing, uh, the, the last one is called Why Is God Ignoring Me, by the way, and it's a book on silence, the silence of God, and it's published by Tyndale. But the earlier two books, which is um, uh, a book called The Thomas Factor, Using Your Doubts to Grow Closer to God, which is chiefly on emotional doubt, and the earlier book on dealing with doubt, they're both on my website. The Both books are out of print, 
but they're on my website under the books tab, GaryHabermas.com, and people can make use of them. They can print chapters off. They can give them to people free of charge. In fact, there's nothing for sale on my on my website. So for doubters, I, w- I would say the first thing, first reason they should take a look at uh, Christianity uh, is because it, there's virtually no other religion in the world that's even going to try to talk the, the way we define evidence is that Christian apologetics has become very, very specialized in the last 30 years. And um, the, the way we do things today with, with the guys who are, you know, intelligent design specialists or existence of God specialists, or there's a few out there who do resurrection or maybe afterlife or different aspects of the Bible reliable, it's become so specialized that uh, when I say almost no, no religion will want to get in there and debate, people will be sitting there saying, oh, no, I know this guy who wants to and he wants to. But usually the definition that a non-Christian uses, it's a different kind of definition. If you listen to the kind of debates where, and there's many, many of them all over the place, where Christians debate non-Christians, the Christian is arguing, here's ten arguments, here's five evidences, here's four archaeological discoveries that make a difference, here's this, here's that. The other side doesn't, almost never, almost never says, here's five evidences for, for my religion. They almost always, the few that I want to argue, the few religions that want to argue, will usually argue, here's five reasons why your views are wrong. It's a very subtle difference, but their argument is, oh, you're wrong because, not, I'm right because. And uh, that, that's, that's very important. So that's one reason to start with Christianity, because Christianity claims that it's, you know, I don't want to be too bold about this, but basically that it's, you know, put up or shut up time at a, at a certain point, and Christianity just has the goods. Um, as far as the more doubt question, what about people out there who are going through doubt? Um, I, I would say the most important single thing for them to ascertain, and those two books on the website hopefully will give them some help there, but the most important thing is to find out what sort of doubt they're going through. I've been working with a clinical psychologist for probably 15 years. We're getting ready to publish uh, two long studies of doubt, complete with psychological testing, personality inventories, what sort of person is more likely to ask these sorts of questions, including an inventory that counselors can use with people to tell them what kind of doubt that they most likely have. And what we found out is if these three categories of doubt, uh, factual, emotional, and volitional doubt. Uh, volitional is generally the most serious, or potentially so, but emotional doubt is by far the most common, by far the most painful. And, um, Mike, I'm not sure what, what, what your field of uh, medicine is, but uh, we are, you often see people who line up along uh, areas of psychological struggles, and that's often the kind of doubt they settle on. But anyway, the chief area of, uh, of doubting is, is emotional, and, and especially for men, they think their doubts are factual, and the statistics argue that it's almost always emotional. So what you end up doing is you take the wrong medicine, and you keep feeding yourself evidences, and you get smarter and smarter and smarter, but your doubts never go away because you don't deal with, with the um, underlying emotional issues. So I think that's a very, very important issue to kind of sort out the species of doubt. Mm. 
Wow, wonderful. We actually, that sounds intriguing. We probably have to uh, devote a show to that sometime and and uh, get into that in more in depth. Well, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And we have a guest, Professor Gary Habermas from Liberty University, an expert on the resurrection. And Dr. Habermas, I'd like to get more into some of these minimal facts that you talk about. So I'm envisioning for maybe our audience the uh, image of a courtroom where we have a prosecutor and a defense attorney, and they are presenting evidence before a jury. Now, what you're saying is that there is a certain level of facts that has been agreed to on both sides, say a fingerprint. Both sides agree, yes, this fingerprint was found at this place, and yes, this shoe was found, and yes, this murder weapon was found at another location. So they all agree on what the facts are. The point is trying to put those facts into some kind of story that leads to either the, um, uh, not the victim, but the accused is either guilty or not guilty. And so one side's going to argue all these facts point to he's guilty, and the other side's going to say, even though we agree on the facts, I don't think the person's guilty. So, so first, I guess, let's begin. What are the facts? I mean, minimal facts, okay, but how many? How many are minimal? Is do, are you saying that there are three facts that will prove that Jesus was resurrected, or is it twenty facts that you need? And those, if you have all twenty of those facts, then you can prove that Jesus did rise from the dead. Well, if I'm even speaking to skeptics, which I do frequently, I speak on secular campuses, or I, I dialogue with uh, skeptical professors, and we quite frequently. Well, one way we go about it, so we're not talking past each other, is to put a list of facts on the table. And what usually happens is the two of us will agree with some caveats. You know, we'll say, well, this fact is basically true, but I take this angle and you kind of take this angle on it. But, but the data's, you know, firm at this point. And and then the next five, we have no issue there. Okay, next two, we've got a couple caveats. You know, and that's, that's kind of the way it goes. But rarely does anybody take one of the facts in this list and say, I just, I just don't buy that. Now, um, I generally use about a dozen facts, which is an interesting list for more than one reason. One is because the, the vast majority of critics who are not just you know, barely over the line to the left, but are, are, you know, would call themselves liberal in some sense, they will generally allow more than those 12. They will, uh, they will allow the 12. They might you know, disagree with one of them. And they'll accept basically the the rest of the list, and and they'll take um, they they might give you five or six more. Th- then what I will say is, well, I'll tell you what, um, the the twelve is helpful. And that's a good place to start, but I don't I don't need the twelve. Uh, I can cut the list down to a much smaller list, and depending, you know, I hate to say what mood I'm in, which way is the wind blowing, but it it really is a a, a an arbitrary sort of thing. I'm trying to make a point that. You know, you might give me 20, I'm working with 12, but 12, I mean, some of those are helpful, but I, I need somewhere between four and seven of those 12, so somewhere between a third and about half, or just a touch over half, and uh, I will use those. Now, if I were just to list those facts, I would say something like this. Um, Jesus died due to the rigors of crucifixion. Um, I would say... It depends now if I want to use the four list, the list of four, the list of seven. But basically, um, Jesus died by crucifixion. His disciples 
were kind of, you know, really taking a step backwards. They were going through some despair, normal psychological reaction to having your world crushed, and very unexpectedly so, um, because, you know, he's the greatest in the world. We didn't see this coming. When he did tell us it was coming, we denied it, etc. So they, they, they were in a very shocked emotional state. Um, sometimes I use the empty tomb, sometimes I don't. A majority of scholars, my study shows that about two-thirds or a little more of most scholars today will allow the empty tomb. That's normally not as high as I would like to use uh, the percentage, but I often throw the empty tomb in there. The most important single fact beyond the fact that Jesus died, you know, you have to have a, a resurrected person has to have been dead at some point. <laughs> but the next most important fact, and the one that critics will more unanimously give you than just about anything else on the list, is, and I, I'm wording my, my comment here very, very carefully, the disciples had real experiences that they believed were appearances of the risen Jesus. That, that's allowed. And then I would say next that, uh, this, that these appearances were reported very early. We can actually uh, get back to within months to two or three years after the cross on the proclamation. You can actually get back, there are a number of critical scholars who think we can get all the way back to the year Jesus was crucified for when that was proclaimed, and uh, so that's early. And then I would use a couple skeptics, uh, Paul, and, uh, you know, uh, formerly Saul of Tarsus, and uh, James, the brother of Jesus, who became believers because they thought they saw appearances of the risen Jesus. Now I think I'm, I'm, that's probably like six or seven right there. Um, that would be the longer list, and uh, I, they would they would almost always allow those to be put on the table. Uh, some some there'll be some quibbling about the empty tomb with some people, but uh, I would use that data, and then I would build a case around those, and I would say that with only those facts, the resurrection is more likely than not. It's the best explanation for the data we have. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, we have talked about some of those. Uh, facts in the past. We did a, a great show on uh, death by crucifixion. We have the advantage of having a physician, right. um, and he went over the JAMA article from, I believe, 1986. Yeah, right. that, uh, and went over the physiology, and that there is absolutely no question that Jesus had to have been dead. So um, so let's skip over that, but but how do we, the you one of the Four minimum that you mentioned was that uh, Jesus's death caused the disciples to despair. Right now, give us a little more data on that one. Sure. The reason, virtually, there is virtually no scholar out there that's going to argue with you on this one. And you can say, uh, you know, you can make a comment like, "Well, all four gospels indicate that," but that's usually not why they will allow this one to pass. They'll say. Uh, yeah, keep your verses, but there's almost no other way what happened could happen psychologically now, or, or uh, you know, in, in the realm of psychiatry or, or, psycho, or psychology. Um, there's almost no way that you could have given, let's just say, one to three years of your life to following Jesus, uh, left your family for periods of time, left your business, lived hand-to-mouth, um, thought you were devoting your life to the greatest cause in the universe, thought that the person, uh, you know, I mean, you think about Peter's testimony or something, you're the 
uh, Christ, the Son of the Blessed One, thought that everything you were caught up with your whole life was going to take on a new angle on who this person was. And in spite of the fact that Jesus said, and scholars, by the way, have taken a really positive look at these predictions, but um, Jesus predicted uh, several occasions that he would die. They didn't like that. They kind of whisked it out of the way. So it didn't, you know, it doesn't seem to have given them a lot of preparation for what happened. All of a sudden he's snatched from their midst. He's beaten up severely. He's crucified. And just like that, he's dead. And, um... I mean, I've heard, I've heard John Dominic Crossan, who's as well-known a critic as there is in the country, and I've heard him say, well, whatever you think the walk with uh, the disciples to, to Emmaus, he said, whether you take that as a parable, as an example of what happened, or as a fact-for-fact fact kind of rendition, he, he said, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an accurate sort of portrayal of what happens. Here's, here's a couple folks who, they're just totally forlorn. You know, hmm. we thought he was going to be the one who would redeem Israel and zap. I mean, it's over. What happened to our world? And and so I think the main argument there, yes, you do have some verses that say that's what happened. But the main thing is, what else could you imagine would have happened, knowing what we know now from normal psychiatry and psychology? So you have people like uh, John Dominic Cross and um, uh, John Shelby Spong, some people who are pretty far down on the, you know, who would who would say they don't believe in a resurrection, who will give you that fact without even, you know, I don't think there'd be an argument. Mm. Uh, question, Professor. Um, with respect to the Gospels not being allowed in the argument, obviously the earliest Gospels that we have um, are, what, 25 to 30 years after the cross, but scholars will accept Paul's testimony, and they can date that to within a year of the cross. Tell us why that's such a critical argument on your behalf for these this minimal facts uh, sure. argument. Well, first of all, they're not going to concede that the Gospels are 25 to 30 years later. Now, where they would put them is not going to change the argument much. But typically, Mark is going to be dated. I, you know, when I'm given, doing this when I'm doing this presentation at State University, I will use the critics' dating for the Gospels because it doesn't make that much difference. But they'll typically date Mark at. Uh, 65 to 70, which is, what is that? That's plus 35 or 40. Mm-hmm. They put Matthew at about plus 50 or 80 A.D., Luke at about 55 or 85 A.D., and John, conservatives and liberals alike, put John at about 95 or plus 65. And, th- and that's not too late for ancient history. Um, the reason they like Paul is because Paul's much earlier. The, the uh, six to eight epistles that virtually everyone grants are Pauline, minimal Pauline epistles. They call them the, the authentic epistles of Paul. They're always the major ones that, that uh, evangelicals, for example, want to use. They will always concede Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, First Thessalonians. Uh, those will always be there. But the reason they prefer Paul is because Paul is earlier. The majority of these epistles are in the mid-50s. Galatians could be very early 50s. Um, So they're much earlier. So now we are talking 20 to 25 to 27, 28 years. Secondly, they know the author of these epistles, as opposed to, uh, there's a great many scholars today who would say, we don't know the authors of the Gospels. They circulated as anonymous books, and names were attached to them later. Now, there, there there is a return 
of late to the gospel, uh, even by non-evangelical scholars. So the gospels are coming back into play for some fantastic reasons. And people who are interested in that, I would recommend the book by Richard Baucom, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, published by Erdman's, a sort of a, a major league research treatise published by Erdman's. And uh, it's one of the examples of the gospels coming back. But again, Paul is A, earlier, B, of known authorship, and C, no one's going to question Paul's uh, training, his rabbinic training, and therefore you have a scholar doing the writing. So those reasons put Paul on the map, and then Paul himself refers to teachings that circulated before he became a believer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, he says in both places, I delivered unto you that which I also received. He adds in 1 Corinthians 11, that which I also received from the Lord. And in other words, he is passing on tradition. And you often find this. Uh, there's a third time in, in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, uh, we observe the traditions of the elders. So he was faithfully passing on tradition from others. And it's critics who think that the 1 Corinthians 15 argument uh, goes back to about 35 to 36 when Paul got that material we can actually get it much earlier than that, because if he received it from somebody else, namely Peter and James, when they were in uh, when he was in Jerusalem for the first time, Galatians chapter 1, those gentlemen, uh, Peter and James, had to have it before Paul did. Then you had to ask, how long did it take for these verses to become sort of solidified into a creedal form? Then you have to ask, well, then what about the events behind the, the text itself? And you have groups like the G- Jesus Seminar, which is very well known for being you know, pretty far to the left, they're, they're going to say that this material predates Paul's conversion. Uh, Garrett Ludeman says it's at, at the most. He, he's a critical, sometimes called atheist New Testament scholar. I'm not sure if he's actually an atheist, but he's pretty critical. He says the latest this material can be is three years after the cross. Um, so there are some more recent scholars, uh, O'Collins, Hurtado, uh, Dunn, and uh, folks like that, Bauckham, who actually put this testimony back closer to about 30 A.D. So that, that, is, that right there is the, most, the single most exciting argument, is that we can get back to the teachings of the earliest eyewitnesses who claim to have seen Jesus dating from the early 30s A.D. Uh, Dunn says that only took months to solidify this teaching into a creed. So if it only took months to, to get it into a da-da-da-da-da-da-da kind of form, because that's the way it reads in 1 Corinthians 15, um, you're going to have to get back to within months of the cross. That, to me, that's the single most exciting conclusion. you got the right, right people, right time, right place, talking about the right message, and uh, Christianity is what benefits from this kind of research. Yeah, the interesting follow-up on that is that uh, Saul of Tarsus, obviously who became the writer Paul, uh, was practically the Gestapo for the... Uh, um, against the early church, persecuting him and so forth. Right. So when he became um, converted and obviously was a believer, uh, this this carried a whole lot more weight as well. And not to mention the fact that he became the most prolific writer of uh, of the New Testament and uh, the most traveled missionary spreading the word. So in our analogy of a courtroom, this is almost the equivalent of the uh, defense attorney admitting that yes, those are his defendant's fingerprints on the gun. <laughs> That's a that's a really astounding. Well, if you're now, just we have, we have a we have a smoking weapon now. Now, what yeah. it's going to come down to? I've I've had several essays where I argue that the most important 
single thing we have to settle is what were the nature of these experiences yes. that the earliest witnesses claim were appearance of the risen Jesus. Because everybody, virtually everybody, is going to tell you these guys had real experiences. Oh. Now, so the question is going to boil down to what's the best explanation for what kind of experience it was. I was just going to ask you about that. And if you are just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. Hi, I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And we have with us on the line Dr. Gary Habermas, professor of philosophy and theology at Liberty University. And you were talking just a minute ago, I was going to ask you about that, these experiences that the disciples had, because I remember growing up, I also was raised in the church, and I remember very distinctly being told that this was mass hallucination. Right. So that that answers it, doesn't it? I mean... Yeah, if, right. If it's mass hallucination, that solves that it. answers it. Yep. That's a big. That's a huge if. <laughs> In fact, I'll, I'll just make a comment. My clinical psychologist buddy, uh, I mentioned earlier, uh, Gary Sibsey, He's still he works in a hospital in a, in a, a psychiatric uh, uh, facility. Plus, he um, is our director of our MA PhD program in uh, counseling. Uh, he did a word study. I mean, he did a search years ago, and reported that there is no documented data. There are stories. There are anecdotal reports. But there are no documented stories. You guys started out by talking about the difference between research and mm. storytelling mm. or surveys or research and interviews. Uh, and interview, interviews can be very important. But that there's no documented data of group hallucinations in the psychological or psychiatric literature. You know, before my uh, um, conversion, I have to tell you that, I'm, first of all, I'm an internist, and I used to look at religion and call it organized schizophrenia. Right. You know, okay. hearing voices and so forth, and I would tell people, yes, I do have medicine for that. I can help you. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's where I came from. So almost like Paul, I had to uh, find out the facts and... and take a stand, and come forward. So um, That's excellent. That's a good background, because people just think, you know, you are talking about Sunday school classes earlier, Keith, and I, mm. um, you know, you, people think it's all Sunday school, and you're talking to the choir, and of course they believe it because they're the choir, and uh, it doesn't occur to them that there can be backup for these things. And when you get in there, it's very, very sobering to be a critic and to know where to go and to find the data, and to try to get yourself out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's look at some of the other. We've got, uh, oh, I guess about seven minutes left. Let's take a look at some of the other um, beliefs that have been thrown out there that we've probably heard uh, many times over the years that uh, people will say that they can explain away, that the, the facts uh, don't show that Jesus rose from the dead, they can they they believe they can fit the facts into some of these different theories. Sure. So uh, one of them that uh, you know I, I've been hearing this a little bit lately is the twin theory. Uh, you know, really? Jesus had a twin, and so there was somebody that looked just like Jesus who came along. So couldn't that wouldn't that fit those facts that we've that everybody's agreed upon? Yeah. Now, if you, if we were, at a, if I was at a speaking engagement, and you came up during the Q and A and went to the microphone <clears throat> and said that, we would have a little dialogue about this. And one of the very first questions I would have for you 
See, to me, Christians, to use a boxing analogy, Christians are very good counterpunchers. We seldom go on the offensive. And we have the kind of data that we should be pushing critics. And if someone came up to me and said that, I'd say, um, I'd say, okay, well, answer this question for me. This whole lecture, I've been, whatever my topic was tonight, I've been giving you a half dozen facts that critics agree to. We've been trying to see what kind of alternative explanations are available. And you waited till the end, which, you know, that's what we agreed to on the questions. And, and you said, can we fit the twin brother theory into the scenario? And I'd say, look, we've had an agreed upon method, which is we will use data that, that we share. And, and so I'll just pause because I've been giving you first century data. In fact, the data that I've based my whole lecture on tonight, that's the way I would typically do it, would all be between 30 and 55 A.D. The majority of my data would be between 30 and 36 A.D. So I'd say, okay, let me see if, if we can play the same game with data. And I'll just stop here, and let me ask you, could you produce only two or three early pieces of literature from the same period, 30 to 36, go all the way to 55 if you want to, and tell me what pieces of literature do you have that tell me that Jesus did have a twin and that he was in this situation where he could have pawned himself off as Jesus. So I'll just be quiet and let you give me your sources. And there would be a profound silence. And the best he could do is say, well, I do know one brother, and that was James, and he was a skeptic. But except, yeah, except he was James converted. He a believer in the resurrection. Exactly. <laughs> so, so, you know, there yeah, are... there's no data. Now, and then I would say to the person, I say, look, I'm not trying to belittle you. I'm not trying to, I'm just saying, if you want to play by the same rules, you, you have to have data for this. And, and so I think a lot of Christians think you can't make this move in apologetics, but I won't hesitate to make it. And I would say to the guy, oftentimes the person will come back and he'll say, but, but it could have happened, right? And it would explain it, right? And I'd say, it can explain it if that's the case. The problem is there's no data for your scenario. So my question would be, my comeback might be something like this. You have a possibility of being right. You have a strong probability of being wrong. And, and to quote the skeptic to cite, to paraphrase this, the famous skeptic David Hume, wise men choose probabilities. So do you want to go through the rest of your life with a very, uh, barely possible scenario, or do you want to go through the rest of your life and base your beliefs on probabilities like you do in every other area of your life? Hmm. Well, I, I find it interesting that uh, James was a skeptic, and he became converted, and he lived with this guy and grew up with Jesus sure. his entire life. And, of course, Paul was a, a, a supreme persecutor of the early Christian Church, and he too was converted by the uh, evidences and uh, being touched literally by the hand of Jesus. Well, there's sure. a there's a we, few... we, we go a step further, too, guys. I'll keep mm. this very, very brief. But, yeah. but would Mary, the mother of Jesus, or would James, the brother of Jesus, or any other group of cousins and brothers or sisters, would they know about the twin brother? Absolutely. And if so, why did they come to believe in the resurrection? Right, right. So, And it goes back also to their willingness to uh, suffer. So, and, and that brings in that other famous um, rationale is that, well, the disciples stole the body, come on. You know, right. they wanted to create... They thought that uh, Jesus' message ought to continue, and so they stole the body, because that helps to make, pr pr 
advance Jesus's message. Right. Yeah, now that, that view, I can give you a historical rundown of that, not that anybody wants it, but I could track that one for you. There are only two or three scholars who have held that view. I don't mean throwing it out as happenstance, but have said this is what happens. Two or three specialists in about 200 years. It's the, it's the worst of all the major theories. And the reason it is, there's a bunch of comebacks, but the main one is that the majority of the scholars, as we've already said, believe that the earliest apostles, the earliest disciples, believers, had experiences that they believed were appearances of the risen Jesus. If, if we're so sure about that, I wrote an article recently in a non-evangelical journal, it's on my website, on a non-evangelical journal saying that was the key fact next to the death of Jesus, which is confirmed uh, by everyone, if we know they had experiences and believe them to the point of being willing to die, if we concede that, you can't explain that that natural belief, that sold-out sort of belief, as they took, they stole the body, and then they were psychologically convinced it was the real thing and died for what they knew to be a fraud. And that fact, not just that one or two of them did, but that they were all willing to is, is a, a psychological problem of, of uh, an incredible issues because uh, of an incredible degree of improbability because you're asking them to believe what is directly and believe at the center of their life what is directly opposed to what they did. Mm-hmm. Well, that, so that, that, that's the last one that's ever brought up anymore. That music means that, that it is the end of the show. And Dr. Habermas, we are just thrilled to have had you on as a guest. Um, real quickly, people should contact you. How or or how do they get your books? Uh, books, I would just say go to Amazon. I don't sell them on the web. I, I basically don't sell them at all. Okay. But uh, Amazon.com, the two out-of-print books are on the website. And uh, GaryHabermas.com, they can get all kinds of material. It's all free of charge. They can, they can read it, make a copy, pass it to somebody else. Uh, as long as it's not you know, a copyright deal. But there's a lot of things there they can take and pass on. Well, thanks again for being our guest, Dr. Habermas. Thanks, fellas. Great interview. I appreciate your knowledge and your background. It was great. Great. Well, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith with Keith Kendricks and Dr. Mike Larrakis. Join us again next week, Sunday at 4 p.m. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Mission's bucket made. They say that there's a moment, they say they want.